Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And on behalf of EESI and the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, I am happy to welcome you to this afternoon's briefing, taking a look at the whole issue of how does foreign climate aid benefit the United States. We are very privileged this afternoon to have someone with us who has been involved at the very highest levels in terms of looking at this issue, uh, in terms of an important mechanism called the Green Climate Fund, or GCF, uh, that was set up in conjunction with the uh, international climate negotiations. We also are joined by someone from the German Embassy, whose country has been an important leader with regard to climate and energy strategies uh, that have really helped uh, move and the, the whole clean energy economy globally uh, in terms of the innovative financing strategies as well as very active uh, uh, commitments to deployment of clean energy. And we are also joined in this panel by someone who is actively engaged in financing projects so that you'll get to see the whole sort of sweep of what's involved in looking at this very, very important topic and why it's important. Because with regard to thinking about foreign aid and, and particularly foreign aid for developing countries in terms of thinking about climate and why this is good for the United States, why it's in our national interest, uh, what are some of those reasons? Are there good business reasons? We're going to hear more about that this afternoon. But also in terms of thinking about what this means from a humanitarian, from a resilience perspective, because we certainly know that over decades and decades, in terms of the history of the United States, that the United States has often, I would say probably, always been in the front line in terms of providing assistance when there are disasters, uh, when there are humanitarian crises. And this is a way in which we can perhaps help ameliorate and prevent some of those disasters, some of those uh, human needs, by creating greater resilience in societies which can further economic development and overall business globally. So we're going to hear more about how all of this works. How does the Green Climate Fund work? Why is it relevant to the United States and to our uh, uh, current uh, situation going forward? Uh, how does all of this work in terms of thinking about priorities with regard to foreign policy, with regard to development assistance in terms of the global community of which we are all a part? So I want to start by introducing Dr. James Bond, who is the former senior advisor to the executive director of the Green Climate Fund, where he served in that capacity for three years. Um, as a senior advisor to the executive director, uh, their, their headquarters was in South Korea. He is also a managing director at Public Capital Advisors, and throughout his multi-decadal Career. He has held a number of positions um, at the World Bank Group, and he is also um, uh, 
has he has also been a senior advisor with the African Development Bank. James. Thank you very much, Carol. I think you're probably the only person that ever called me doctor, so thank you very much for that too. But I'm, uh, I'm a doctor in uh, economics and not in uh, medicine, so I can't fix whatever you have. Uh, my name is James Long. It's an interesting word with the character you like. And I, I'm a financial advisor, and I worked on the Green Climate Fund uh, after Korea and the World Bank. I've come to talk to you about the Green Climate Fund, but I think more generally about climate finance. I want to talk about set the climate fund in the climate finance uh, framework, and then I wanted to say a word about why I think it's a good, it's a good business case for the US to support the Green Climate Fund and similar initiatives. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about what is climate finance. And our friends over at the uh, Climate Policy Initiative, this, by the way, is a wind farm up at Lake Tucan in Kenya, uh, which, where I was financial advisor uh, in producing uh, electric power in Kenya uh, through wind. Uh, but let's talk about flows, and this is difficult to read, but I think the most important thing here is that Climate uh, Policy Initiative have worked out who's financing what with climate finance, and essentially uh, we believe the needs, the world needs seven to eight hundred billion dollars a year uh, to address the climate issue. Is that a lot of money? It's billions, hundreds of billions. Well, to set, set things in, uh, in perspective, the world spends about two and a half trillion dollars a year on infrastructure generally. Roads, ports, airports, electricity, water and sanitation, uh, and the like. And so we need about 700 to 800 billion, and currently about 391 billion dollars are flowing to climate, to the kinds of projects that uh, we need to put in place to address climate. So there's a big effort going on. Nothing, nothing is happening. In fact, 56% of what we need to finance is being financed today. So the question then is, where's the money going? And if you take a look at the analysis, essentially it's going, first of all, to mitigation, that is, to reduce CO2 emissions, and not really to adaptation, to help us adapt to climate change and the effects that come from it, things like rising sea levels and storms, and so it's dealing with mitigation. It's going to developed countries, 87% goes to developed countries, 13% to emerging markets, and 72% comes from the private sector, 72%, and the rest going from the public sector. So that's what it looks like today. And if we take a look at what we need in developing countries, in emerging economies, we probably need about 430, 450 uh, billion dollars a year in finance. We're getting currently about uh, uh, 35 to 50, and we need uh, 430 and uh, 450 additional um, uh, financing to put in place the kinds of investment we need, which are climate, uh, let's say, climate-friendly uh, electricity generation, the kind of power plant we didn't make to Carnot, uh, uh, <coughs> solar, photovoltaic, solar energy generation, uh, adaptation to help communities deal with rising sea levels uh, and increasingly arid agricultural environments, uh, that this kind of thing. So that's what's needed. And the question is, how would one ideally, if we're an economist, I am an economist, 
uh, how would you put the kinds of investments in place? Uh, what are the different ways economists uh, look at our analysis? And I, the first of all, climate change and GHG emissions are what we call a global externality. They're essentially something that no one country can deal with. We have to go through, uh, we have to work through um, collective action. And collective action across uh, borders is very difficult. The costs are not borne by the polluters, so uh, the people bearing the costs, um, uh, people who have housing along uh, Benin, uh, the sea level that's rising at the moment, uh, they are not the ones emitting and they can't take the right kind of action. And so the economists talk about the first best, the second best, and the third best way of addressing. The first best is to internalize the externalities, to make sure that there's an ownership of the problem and that those who own the problem can fix it. Now, what do we mean by that? The U.S. has had an extraordinarily successful attempt at doing that with sulfur dioxide emissions in the 70s. And the U.S. put in place a cap and trade and essentially eliminated a problem which was a major environmental problem in the U.S. It doesn't exist anymore, or hardly at all. Similarly, went on with the NOx and the nitrogen oxides. So the first best is to provide ownership rights and to basically allow trading amongst polluters and people who have the rights. If you can't do that, the second is fiscal policy, and that's pretty good. Setting in place fiscal policy will set in place a price for carbon in this particular instance, which will change the behavior of investors to make the right kinds of choices in their investments. And what's interesting to me in this country is in our, let's say, somewhat unusual uh, dialogue about climate change and about the environment generally, to see that the oil companies are very much arguing for a price, a carbon price, and for a fiscal approach to this. So this is something that um, I think is not an ideological discussion. It is a second best but a very effective way of um, essentially getting investors to do the right thing and to make the right decisions. And if you can't get first best and second best, the third is for governments to finance the incremental cost for the people who would need to take the decisions uh, to uh, invest in the, right, uh, um, in the right kinds of technology. And that is what the, the world decided to do with the Green Climate Fund. To say, we can't get first best. There's no way we can provide a tradable um, sort of capital trade system at the international, global level. We can never get a global uh, tax system, one global tax system in place for all 197 countries in the world of the UN So let's go for third best, and let's use the third best to try to influence change. Uh, unfortunately, it gets a little bit more complicated because there are some investments which actually would save money. There's no incremental cost. If you do things like on the left-hand side, like increase um, uh, the installation of housing or go to small run-of-the-river hydro, it actually would make money compared to the baseline. So there's many things that make sense from an environmental point of view, make sense in terms of extra return from the individuals today, are not being done, mostly because of uh, market failure, um, not having the right financial instruments, not having the information and so on. So, the world decided to go with a third best solution. Let's put in place a financing mechanism to finance uh, the incremental cost for those who need to take the right investment decision in emerging economies. And they did this within a framework which is the international climate architecture, 
International Climate Architecture, essentially the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. And this is a UN body that was created in, uh, after the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. So that takes us back a quarter of a century. And it groups essentially all the countries of the world, 197. I mean, the number of countries varies depending on who you talk to. But it has 197 members. And essentially, the UNFCCC is a body that tries to bring together all the countries and to take action on climate. And it has two sort of technical emanations. One is what we call the International Panel on, Panel on Climate Change, the scientists who are doing this work on identifying what is happening in the climate. And they actually have existed since before the UNFCCC. And the second is a much more recent animal called the Green Climate Fund, which is the principal financial mechanism to channel resources to emerging economies to pay for this incremental cost that would need to be covered to make the emerging economies take the right decision. So, politics behind this. Politics, the world actually came up with a, 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 um, a greenhouse gas emissions reduction at the Kyoto in 1995, but it only included the rich countries. And between 1995 and essentially about uh, 2007-2008, uh, the developed countries tried to get emerging economies and developing countries to sign up and to make uh, emissions reduction commitments. Initially, it didn't matter too much because most emissions came from the US and Europe and Japan. But over the course of that period, developing countries started to be a major part of the problem, in particular China, but also India, Brazil, and countries like that. And essentially, the, the, the argument made at the UNFCCC by the emerging economies, by developing countries, was, you know, it's all very fine. You guys developed. You've developed since the late, 19, late 18th century or the mid-19th century. You've put all the CO2 in the atmosphere. Your CO2 is causing a problem, and now you want us to make an effort. You want us to bear the costs of less development, so that basically you could deal with the fact that you, uh, you know, are now being impacted by the CO2 that you put out in the atmosphere. Now that's a very short argument, and it's not a very uh, robust one, but it is the argument that was made. And essentially what was decided eventually was the rich countries, the developed world, would essentially help the developing world by funding a portion of this incremental cost. And they would, in order to do so, they would create a vehicle, and that vehicle would be the Green Climate Fund. So eventually, thanks in a, in a way to the fact that the Green Climate Fund was put on the table uh, at the negotiations, um, we were able, the world was able to come to the COP21, the Conference of the Parties, 21 in Paris, November, December 2015, at which for the first time a global agreement was made to limit GHG emissions. It's not going to be enough to hit the, the two degree target that we went for, but it's still a first step in the right direction. And the text is not binding. There's no way. I mean, we're not going to, if, for example, Uzbekistan doesn't respect its commitments, we're not going to send in the types of Marines. I mean, I don't think that they have a way of sanctioning. But it is a commitment by the countries. And above all, it's a major market signal to the private sector. 
The private sector can now know the private sector has already funded climate-sensitive investments in countries like the US and Europe. But now you can do this also in emerging economies because the countries themselves believe in a framework where this makes sense. And so it's an enormously important market system. And it doesn't provide for a carbon price, uh, but uh, you do have um, uh, the Green Climate Fund. So then what is this Green Climate Fund we talk about? And by the way, this is about the greenest picture I could find. So, uh, I don't know, it's not particularly applicable to the Green Climate Fund, but it's a beautiful picture. So, uh, so that the Green Climate Fund is the main operating entity under the financial mechanism of the UNFCCC. That's its definition. I mean, it, the U, when you get to the UNFCCC, there's a whole jargon that takes a while to actually learn, which doesn't seem to have much of a resemblance to English or any other language that you're acquainted with. But eventually, you do understand what it is essentially. It's a financial instrument. It's a financial vehicle. Um, it was established in Cancun at the uh, COP16. By the way, another point about the UNFCCC, why I enjoyed working with them for the three years I was there. They always have their meetings in the most wonderful places, Bali, Cancun, and so on. Um, but uh, essentially, so the, the, the GCF's mandate is to promote a paradigm shift. I apologize for the spelling mistake. A paradigm shift, another term that I'm not very fond of. But essentially what they mean is we have to change the direction. It has to be a totally new way of approaching climate finance. Uh, we, during the course, I in a way was the plumber on the fund. I was the person underneath, you know, doing the pipes and the... Uh, these kinds of things, and um, the, the board approved this, and on the basis of this, we went and saw the uh, potential contributors, the rich countries. These were often countries I actually dealt with in a previous incarnation uh, at the World Bank, where I spent 25 years, and we had got a pledge of about 10.3 billion dollars. So let's talk again numbers. The world needs 7 to 800 billion. The developing countries need. 430 to 450 billion. Um, at Cancun, they said rich countries will transfer 100 billion. Now we're down to 10 billion. Okay. So it's kind of a shrinking pile. But 10 billion is a lot of money. I mean, make no mistake, 10 billion is still a lot of money. Particularly if you think that the aim of the 10 billion is not to solve the climate, but to change behavior of private investors so that they will come and make the right investment. So you get the maximum amount of private leverage. The 10 billion should be able to leverage an additional 90 billion, which then uh, together should show the others that this makes sense from a, a market perspective. The first investments were approved in November 2015. When I did the slides, uh, two and a half billion had been approved, equivalent to about close to five billion in total project size, because the fund only funds a portion of, the, uh, of it. Um, and uh, they just had a, just finished a board meeting where further investments were approved in one billion. So how does the fund actually change compared to others? Because there's the global environment facility, there are private funds. How does it, how does it change? How, can it be different from all of these guys? And why put money in a fresh fund and not use the global environment facility, the World Bank, the UNDP, one of these ones? So, well, the thing is the fund is different in a number of aspects. The first and foremost, it's a fund of funds. It's not going to create 15,000 employees based in, in Songdo, the 15,000 people at the World Bank. It's going to keep 50 or 100. It's going to be truly like a private fund and work through partners 
accredited and, and who have undergone a due diligence to make sure that they know what they're doing, that they're not, uh, they have decent accounts, that there's no money, money laundering, that they have all of the aspects that you need to make sure the money is safeguarded. So it's a fund of funds. The second, when we did this, when we took a look, we said, how can this be different? The World Bank lends, climate, it lends about 30 billion a year, much more than there is the fund. Well, the difference is the World Bank is AAA, and it doesn't take risks. If you're AAA, if you're really AAA, you use your money very, very prudently. And that means you don't take risks. And our contention is the issue in emerging economies is not so much liquidity requirement, but the fact that no one is willing to take the risk. They're not willing to take the risk on the country. They're not willing to take the risk on the climate risk, on the market risk, and so on. So what you need is a body that will go in there, fund will go in, to essentially pick up that residual risk so the rest of the project has a much lower risk profile and can attract money from the private sector or from the others. So it's essentially de-risking. That's what it does. The third is, and this is very unusual, and I'm very surprised we got this through the fund's board, the fund has the richest set of financial instruments of any public finance body I see. Everything from equity, quasi-equity, senior debt, sub-debt, uh, guarantees, partial risk, partial credit, uh, full guarantees, everything excepting insurance-type products. The fund doesn't do insurance-type products because it's a different treatment on the balance sheet. The capital is treated differently. And it doesn't do derivatives. It's allowed to do plain vanilla things like swaps. But for the moment, derivatives aren't the table. But otherwise, it's as rich as any investment bank. It's richer than, an investment, than many investment funds. So this makes it very unusual. It's going to try, we saw that no money is flowing to mitigation. In fact, it's difficult to finance mitigation, I'll be honest. Uh, but the fund has, so far as respect to this, a commitment to balance mitigation and adaptation funding. And so far it has respected that. Uh, and then uh, it goes, it has a balance of the poorest countries, those are the most difficult to find the financing, what they call in, in, in um, UNF C speak, SIDS LDC SSA. SIDS are small island developing states, LDC is the least developed countries, SSA is sub-Saharan Africa. And then finally, uh, the whole idea to mobilize private financing. We don't want to solve the problem. We want to put in place the kind of leverage that will help others that solve the problem. It works through partners. These are some of the partners. There are more now. But the partners involve uh, UN agencies, UNDP, UNEP, uh, big multilateral banks, World Bank, Inter-American Bank, Development Bank, African Development Bank, EBRD, and the like through uh, NGOs um, and through uh, the private sector, like Deutsche Bank is, is accredited, and Acumen Fund is, a, is an impact investor. So again, just like the products are very wide, the partners are very wide. And this is great, because you can tailor, if you like, the right partner and the right instrument to this particular need. For example, a project the fund has financed is to help uh, small-scale farmers in a, in a river delta in Senegal deal with the fact that rising sea levels are in, increasing the salination of their soil and making it more difficult for them to, to uh, continue the traditional agriculture, and it's helping them adapt their agriculture to the changing 
uh, nature of their soils. That you can't put a, an equity stake or a, or a guarantee on something like that. That's something that you would do as a grant. It's, on the other hand, the fund has uh, helped uh, through many SMEs, many small and, and medium enterprises in Africa improve their energy efficiency through lines of credit and small loans made through banks. And in this case, it's using what's called a financial intermediary loan that's run through one of its credited partners through commercial banks, ending up as loans and credits to small and medium enterprises. So it's a different, each instrument and each partner can be tailored to a specific problem uh, that the GCF and its shareholders uh, want to solve. I'm going to do it quickly because I think I've spoken enough here, Carol, uh, but what I will do, it has a very uh, rigorous um, evaluation mechanism to know what it funds or not. I won't go into the detail, but you have it in the handout. And I want to talk to this slide. This is my concluding slide. So why would you want to do climate finance, especially in today's world, in today's environment? You know, it's philanthropic, helping these development countries these developing countries, aren't they all corrupt anyway, they never develop, and, you know. Getting involved in climate finance is good business for the United States. Supporting the GCF and providing the similar kinds of support in emerging economies to the climate change is good business for the US. And it's good business for two reasons. First of all, the global climate problem can't be solved without global, without efforts across the board. And today, the US has the biggest economy, but in about five years, the biggest economy in the world will be China. And China today emits more CO2 than the US. So it's great for the US to make an effort, but without global action, we're not going to crack this nut. And we need an instrument like the GCF to bring these increasingly emitted countries on board to make them change the direction of their, um, uh, of their climate emissions. And this is good for the US because essentially it reduces the cost of things like you know, insurance on for major storms, the uh, uh, changing agriculture, and those the kinds of arguments that are absolutely conventional uh, in climate change. But also it's good business for a second reason, and that is COP21 has triggered a huge surge, and this is something I, I actually work in, uh, I'm no longer in the fund, uh, has triggered a huge surge in, in development of a new asset class, climate-friendly infrastructure in emerging economies. It's what I do for a living now today, and it, by the way, it pays pretty well, so I'm not complaining. But, you know, if, if the U.S. wants to be part of this new business, supporting something like the Green Climate Fund gives you a seat at the table and makes you one of the key stakeholders. It's going to happen anyway, and if the U.S. doesn't want to do it, it will be done. It will be done by others. It will be done by China, India, and some of the other nations. And I think it's actually in the U.S.'s interest with this relatively modest support it provided the Green Climate Fund to be a, a founding partner at the table and to make sure that the U.S. companies, firms, banks, investors profit from this new emerging asset class uh, in emerging economies. So, Carol, that's all I want to say. Thank you very much for allowing me the chance uh, to talk about the Green Climate kind of Fund today. Thank you. Thanks very much, James, for providing that kind of an overview and in terms of sort of also looking at how this has now kind of morphed into your new uh, uh, area of work, which is 
uh, picking up on exactly what you were doing, but putting it into uh, practice on a daily basis uh, in, in a new frame as well. So now we are going to hear from Anton uh, Hoffnagel, who is the Environmental and Urban Affairs Officer with the Embassy of Germany. Uh, Anton manages a very diverse portfolio, which involves climate, environment, and urban development. Uh, but because this is also the year of the German uh, G20 presidency and the upcoming COP23 in Bonn, it also means that he is, is, he is having a real focus on uh, international climate policy. Uh, Anton previously worked for Germany's Federal Ministry for the Environment, Major Conservation, Building and Nuclear Safety in Bonn, and he also worked in London for J.P. Morgan. ESI for, for hosting this panel. Um, first time I was here uh, was late last year for another panel hosted by, by ESI. It was a wonderful opportunity and a lot of uh, very interesting people at the time, so I'm happy to be here um, speaking this time. That's, that's perfect. Um, so as Carol uh, just mentioned, I only recently joined the, uh, the German Embassy here in DC. Uh, moved last September. Um, I was asked somewhere in early 2016 whether I would be interested in representing German environmental policy to the United States. And I was thinking, well, that's a no-brainer. That's a, a, an easy job <laughs> in, a, in a great country. The other destinations were Nairobi, China, India. And my wife wasn't too, uh, she wasn't too excited about those. Um, and now this has moved into a, a very interesting undertaking, uh, representing uh, not only German environmental policy, but uh, especially our, our climate policy, climate policy of, uh, of the rest of the world, uh, to a new administration that sometimes needs a little bit of convincing here and there. Um, but I'll speak about uh, Germany and not the United States in this presentation, and uh, especially our efforts in international climate finance. Um, our international finance efforts are uh, part of a comprehensive strategy that encompasses um, domestic efforts and our international efforts. Of course, domestic efforts are uh, very much the center of politics. Uh, Germany has established a tariff in 1990. Uh, so when you install solar panels on your, uh, on your house's roof in 1990, you were able to obtain uh, government funding for that, uh, that has now evolved into something we call the, the energy vendor or the energy transition, which is a very clear set of uh, targets for our energy system, our transport system, our industry uh, to transition towards uh, decarbonized work by uh, mid of the century. Uh, but of course, as James has pointed out, climate change is very much of a collective action problem. Uh, if Germany alone decides to um, end climate change, that's probably not going to happen in, in our borders. Uh, we will need international cooperation, and cooperation has made a major step forward with the uh, coming into force of the Paris Agreement in 2016. Uh, from now on, we will be focused on the implementation of the Paris Agreement, and the rest of the world is focused on the implementation of the Paris Agreement. 
age of the developing world has brought us the buy-in of the developing world and will be uh, equally important in the future. Uh, so what is the, the energy transition or the energy event then say for Germany? Well, it's basically these four goals that were defined in, in 2010. One of the goals came a little bit later, uh, but in 2010, Germany decided that we would be 40 to 45 percent renewable by 2025. In 2017, we're at now 31 percent uh, renewable energy in our grid, um, up from um, about 10 percent in 2005. Um, so that's a major change to our, to our energy system. Um, and we are, um, for industrialized nation of this size, we are uh, the first nation to accomplish uh, this share of renewable energy in the system. It's creating a lot of, uh, it's creating advantages, but it's also creating some issues in, in an economy that's as highly developed and as reliant on the energy system as Germany. And as we're figuring those out, we're positioning ourselves as a model for the rest of the world to follow, uh, or so we hope. And we're positioning our industry um, as the leading industry when it comes to um, sustainable energy systems. Um, in 2011, the German parliament decided to completely phase out our nuclear power plants by the year 2022. 2011, of course, was the year of the Fukushima accident. Um, and at that time, the German parliament decided that that was a risk that Germany, as a very densely populated country in the middle of Europe, did not want to take going forward. And so we took that decision uh, in 2011. And we have, in 2016, phased out another nuclear power plant. There's currently five nuclear power plants still on the grid, down from 17 in 2011. And those will be completely gone by. We have a, an emissions target by 2020 uh, to lower emissions by 40% compared to 1990. Uh, we are somewhat on track, could be doing a little bit better when it comes to that target. And we have an efficiency target that is defined as 20% less energy consumption by 2020. Um, there's a lot of discussion, especially here in the United States, um, that seems to create a link between energy consumption and growth, or energy consumption and economic prowess, so to say. Um, I remember um, a presentation given here at the, the Heritage Foundation uh, somewhere late last year uh, where they were showing a graph and we basically saw a very straight line, a regression line, linking energy consumption and, and growth. Um, that is not true whatsoever. Uh, there is a certain uh, linearity there when you come from places like Somalia, Afghanistan, and you progress to the likes of uh, Sweden, Germany, and Europe. Um, after that, energy consumption increases further. Uh, a typical U.S. household consumes about twice as much energy as a typical German household. Uh, there is no effect on GDP. It just means you're less efficient. Um, and while energy prices in Germany are actually twice as high as they are in the United States, that does not matter because um, our energy efficiency means that our households are spending the exact same amount um, they're spending on energy as they're spending in the United States. They're driving maybe they're driving different cars, uh, maybe they're traveling in trains, uh, maybe their houses are actually insulation. 
uh, but this kind of link that is being, uh, that is being portrayed uh, the humanity consumption and, and economic growth is, is certainly not there in the developing world. And we're able to prove that by uh, increasing our efficiency and lowering our energy consumption. Um, that's the you know, event that's happening in Germany. Um, there's a lot of discussion whether you're able to do this, uh, whether these, these goals are actually attainable in an industrialized country. Um, and this is uh, just one of the graphics that shows that Germany uh, is actually doing very well. And we need to be doing very well uh, because we want to keep our industry. So if we're doing an energy, we're doing an energy transition that eventually leads to every German company moving abroad. And it's not that far away to go from France, Poland, wherever. Um, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, so in order to do this and keep our, keep our industry in the country, uh, keep these very strong companies uh, whose cars are being sold in the United States, whose chemicals are being sold in etc. Uh, we need to keep an energy, we need to uh, maintain an energy system that is as reliable as it has been in the past. And the statistic shows you that it's, it's, uh, it's this is a 2015 statistic, shows you that reliability is still pretty much unchallenged uh, worldwide. Uh, this graphic shows you the average duration of customer interruption in minutes. So what happens when you have a blackout, how long does it last? Shows you that in Canada, blackout lasts about five hours. In the United States, blackout tends to last about that's, uh, three and a half hours. In Germany, blackout tends to last about 12 minutes. Um, something you can accomplish by potentially burying your electricity lines underground. Um, just, uh, one. Uh, one of the ways to uh, get statistics here. And of course, this is uh, somewhat a burden for a household. Uh, if you want to um, Netflix, you have to charge your computer. Uh, and this happens on a Friday evening. Uh, it's a catastrophe for um, a chemical company such as Bayer, uh, where basically the entire factory is shut down for uh, a week. Uh, if you have a blackout that lasts longer than that happens. So this is what we're doing in order to keep our industry in the country, keep our economy strong uh, while implementing the, the energy transition. Um, the longer term goals, and this is the climate action plan 2050 that we uh, presented in, in Marrakesh at COP22 last year, along with the United States, Canada, Mexico, uh, and France, is a mid-century plan that outlines our, our long term for 2050, together with sectorial milestones, so sector would be the energy sector, the transport sector, um, the agricultural sector for 2030. Um, and the reason why uh, this was actually um, a decision taken by the, by the G20 under Chinese presidency, that the G20 countries would develop these kind of action plans, these mid-century plans, and in order to create certainty for investors. So if an investor is deciding whether he wants to build a coal-fired power plant, a pipeline, um, or a microgrid, uh, solar panels, um, wind turbines, he needs to look at much longer time horizons, uh, which is one of the reasons why you don't hear anyone in the coal industry in the United States at the moment talking about building new coal-fired power plants. 
coal-fired power plant has a, a life cycle of about 50 years. Um, in an environment where energy policy changes every four years, nobody is going to make the significant investments that we need uh, in order to create sustainable energy systems for the future. Uh, this is why a number of countries, the United States among them, uh, have created these century strategies in order to create that certainty. Uh, whether the certainty um, is actually going to be the future in all of these countries, of course, is up for debate. Um, industry is very much behind uh, these mid-century strategies. If you speak to the large corporations, uh, no matter which sector, and James mentioned this, that the, uh, the oil sector, for example, is very much behind the carbon price, and they're also very much behind these mid-century strategies because they give them room to plan. If I'm building a pipeline, if I'm building a refinery, uh, if I'm building solar panels in Texas, wind in Oklahoma, I need to have a long-term framework. And these mid-century strategies are there to this But once again, Germany, by coming up with all of these great strategies, is only talking about 2.16% global emissions. I think this is a number from 2014, so we might be uh, pointing somewhere close to 2% by now, because the rest of the world is still paying catch up. Um, but it's not a problem we can solve alone. And this is why uh, we have this um, climate political framework, is what James called it just and where the world comes together and decides on a strategy to deal with this collective action problem. It's not a problem that anyone can solve alone. It's actually mentioned by, uh, by Mr. Tillerson in his hearing here in the Senate. Uh, climate change is a collective action problem. We will need to come to the table. The United States wants to uh, remain at that table in order to discuss the solution. Uh, framework for the solutions, of course, one that was heavily influenced by uh, U.S. policymakers, the UNFCCC, uh, created in 1992 under the, uh, the Bush 41 presidency, and now, of course, the Paris Agreement uh, of 2015, created by, uh, in large part, uh, a new leadership consisting of the United States and China, of course, with uh, support by the European Union. Uh, and in the Paris Agreement, for the very first time, developing and developed nations have pledged to contribute to a world where global warming will be kept below, well below 2 degrees Celsius. That is the goal that we gave ourselves in, in 2015 at the COP in Paris. Um, and in 2016, when the Paris Agreement came into force, um, this became the goal for. The 197 parties to the Convention, out of which at the moment 142, including, of course, the United States, Germany, uh, and many others, and we're gratified to agree with that. The time now is for, for action. And this was, uh, in climate action was a phrase that was coined at the conference in Marrakesh last year, and will remain. Uh, focus on international climate collaboration at COP23, uh, which will take place in Bonn, Germany this year, this fall, actually hosted by Fiji. Uh, but since Fiji saw some difficulties in hosting 
the 50 to 60,000 people that usually arrive to these conventions, Germany uh, decided to offer uh, our facilities at uh, the uh, very beautiful city of Bonn on the Rhine. It's not Cancun, uh, it's not uh, it's not Bali, uh, but it's a, it's a very beautiful city. I've worked there for a number of years. Uh, very romantic, give you a chance to make it. Um, uh, Fiji and Germany very much welcome you to, uh, to come. Um, of course, all of this was brought about by uh, a commitment by the developed world to the developing world, in which industrialized countries in, in 2009, actually, at the uh, Conference of the Parties in Copenhagen at the time, pledged that they would provide 100 billion of climate aid to developing countries per year by 2020. This is it's, it's a somewhat surprising number, and it needs to be read correctly. So this is 100 billion not once, but it's 100 billion that would be provided per year annually, um, starting in 2020. And it's not like the rest of the world, or it's not like the industrialized part of the world is currently, is currently saving for its first payment to be made in 2020. Uh, but actually, we are providing um, finance every year. And I think in 2016, about 67 the OECD numbers. The OECD numbers are around 67 billion uh, were provided. Uh, so we are on the way. In 2015, uh, as part of the Paris Agreement, uh, the industrialized countries reiterated this goal, um, and the developing world asked us to then please provide a roadmap of how we're planning to get there. How are we going to get to 100 billion? Um, in 2016, uh, less than a year later, um, the industrialized nations came together and submitted a roadmap uh, to the uh, conference in Marrakesh. And this roadmap, uh, with the help of the OECD, um, basically lines out that we are on track and that the 100 billion goal will be reached uh, by 2020. And of course, this is due to um, significant pledges uh, by the United States, uh, but by virtually every other country in, in, the, in the developed world. What is Germany's roadmap? Uh, these are our climate aid numbers uh, from 2005 to 2015, um, and this is um, a trend that we will uh, follow up until 2020. So in 2015, Chancellor Merkel announced that Germany will again double its climate aid from the 2014 number that you see here, that's 2.3 billion per year, and we will again double that number by 20. So in the year 2020, Germany will provide about 4 to 5 billion per annum in, in planning. Where is this money going? Um, some of this money is going to uh, direct bilateral aid. Uh, so very similar to, to other development aid, uh, Germany is looking for promising projects in uh, a number of countries around the world, and we are supporting these projects. And this gives you the split between different regions, uh, that's Africa, Asia, uh, Southeast Europe, uh, Latin America, and finally, uh, it's a global or uh, cross-regional undertakings. So that's our bilateral aid in, in 
the global uh, the Green Climate Fund actually had a had a goal of 50/50, has a goal of 50/50, uh, which is not that easy to accomplish. Um, um, there has been in the past more of a focus on mitigation. Um, that's changing at the moment, uh, and we can see that uh, Germany is very close to, to actually reaching similar numbers that the GCF has set itself. Um, the developing world, of course, is very much interested in getting as much adaptation money as they possibly can. Because um, they foresee that adaptation is going to be um, a major issue in a lot of countries. Um, just today, uh, not today, but I see, uh, I read the cable today, so this must have happened earlier this week. Uh, the Security Council uh, of the United Nations had its regular meeting on on climate and security, and one of the speakers was uh, the, uh, the representative from the Republic of Kiribati, and they of course reiterated that they will just see their island seat if money is not spent for mitigation and So for a lot of these countries, it's a matter of life and death, um, and adaptation money is especially relevant. And we are trying to provide as much of that as we can. Uh, when it comes to multilateral climate aid, and this is, of course, where the, the GCF and, and other finance mechanisms are, are coming into play. Uh, we see the Green Climate Fund as the principal multilateral financial mechanism of the Paris Agreement. So Germany is very much committed to the Green Climate Fund. Uh, Germany has contributed a billion in uh, USD. Uh, this is not a pledge. This is actually money that has flown into the fund as of today. And we are foreseeing um, again, to increase that number by the next funding period. Uh, so I'll be, uh, I'll be about 10 billion that are in the fund currently. One tenth of that is German money. And Germany has a seat on the board. Uh, we are um, trying to make the Green Climate Fund as, as efficient and as helpful as possible uh, to accomplish the goals set by the Paris Agreement. Um, and the goal of the Green Climate Fund, of course, is to enable developing countries to pursue mitigation adaptation strategies. So we saw that as part of the Paris Agreement. Every country, for the first time, has formulated its nationally determined contributions, its own plan for the future, and how it wants to mitigate climate change, but also how it wants to adapt to climate change. Um, for a lot of these countries, some of those undertakings are going to be um, going to need foreign funding. Climate funds to provide that funding. There's a, a number of other mechanisms. Uh, there's the Global Environmental Facility based here in Washington as um, part of the, the World Bank Group. Uh, there's the Lease Developed Country Fund and Adaptation Fund. Of course, the multilateral development and such as the World Bank is very active in this endeavor. Um, we'll be uh, next week at the, the spring meetings, for example. Uh, when Germany is actually sending two delegations, and one of those is a development delegation, the other one is a climate delegation, uh, to underline our, our climate commitment um, as part of our, our World Bank funding. Um, what I talk about now is the, the public side. So this is all public money. When we're talking about uh, the billion that's gone to the GCF, that's all public money. When we're talking about four billion that have gone to, uh, that are going to go to climate aid by 2020, that's all public money. Um, we know that this is a problem that cannot be solved by public money. 
financial purpose. And this is one of the main findings of the Paris Agreement, uh, that the world wants to make finance flows consistent with a pathway towards lower greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development. So we need not just public investment, but private investment to reflect the global Germany is probably an old approach uh, where we offer special loan facilities, so if you are engaged in uh, a resilience project, for example, in a country where you see significant risk, uh, we would assure you against that risk. Um, and we are also helping partner countries to design similar enabling environments that are making, um, making development aid that's going into the country generally now uh, reflect the results that we agreed on in our climate commitments. Um, how do we make this aid effective? Uh, this is an undertaking uh, that a number of countries have come together and formed the NDC Partnerships Board. This is the, again, the National Determined Contributions. The partnership that was launched in Marrakesh last year is uh, bringing together developing and developed countries and is helping develop, developing countries um, to actually define their agencies in the first place and define strategies to implement those. Um, when they have these strategies, they are then able to more significantly and uh, in a more, more efficient manner to use the climate data that is going to them. Uh, so this is an endeavor where Germany is very involved, one of the funding partners, and uh, actually working together with the uh, World Resource Institute just across the street from the Eclipse Union Station. Uh, where the implementing office of the NDC partnership is located. Um, so I think the, uh, the overall title of this briefing was uh, Climate Aid in the, in the U.S. Interest. Of course, I cannot talk about the U.S. interest. I can only talk about Germany's national interest. Um, Germany is the, uh, one of the first Different numbers, uh, you know, we talked to uh, were number one or number two when it comes to climate aid um, in 2016. Uh, so why is Germany spending these ridiculous amounts of money on international climate aid? How can this possibly be in our national interest? And there's a lot of talk about national interest right now. And some of that talk might be more short-sighted, some of that talk might be more um, might be more rational. And I just want to briefly give you the, the rational why we're doing all of this. Number one, we're supplying the technology for tomorrow. Uh, Germany is not a country that's very rich in resources. We're very rich in engineers. Uh, so we are not exporting oil, gas, or coal. We're not planning to do this in the future. Uh, we're exporting engineering ingenuity, whether that's in a Mercedes, uh, whether that's in, in, a, in, a, in a biochemical, or whether that's in uh, Europe's largest solar plant, you can see in the picture here, which has been built by a German consortium in, in Spain. Um, a lot of these decisions that countries are making at the moment concerning their energy infrastructure are systemic decisions. When you decide to embark on this transition, um, there's no way back. Um, and you realize pretty quickly that it's not just a solar plant here and maybe a wind turbine there, but it has to become an integrated system. And Germany is a provider of these integrated technologies, and we want as many nations in the world to be able to, to use these. Um, so we're helping nations to put these.
today in, uh, in the German media was that Germany for the very first time has accomplished its ODA goal, um, official development assistance, of 0.7%, so this is 0.7% of our GDP um, in 2016 was spent on development aid. It's a goal that was uh, defined by the United Nations in the 1970s, I believe. Um, a number of Sweden has been consistently above that number um, since the 1970s. Uh, there's about four or five other nations that have also reached this goal. Germany has reached its goal um, for the very first time in 2016. So we are spending significant money on development, and we want to spend this money on development that will be there in the future. So we want it to be resilient. We don't want to build, um, don't want to build villages in Africa that will be taken down by the next drought or by the next flood. Uh, so it's in our interest to make our development money resilient. So we're spending it on resilience programs. Um, and finally, uh, there's a very clear connection between climate and security. Uh, this has been reiterated by uh, then General Mattis had his hearing here in the Senate when he described climate change as a significant risk to the national security of the United States. Um, climate change has led or has amplified a number of conflicts in the world already uh, with climate change increasing, climate change becoming even more prevalent. Uh, we see that nexus between climate and security um, amplified. Uh, we see regions of the world that are great risk uh, to become uh, to secure to new conflicts. Um, Germany is of the opinion that money is better spent on preventing conflicts than it is on military endeavors uh, to prevent uh, So we see our climate spending is on our security. Finally, and on national interest, um, collaborative action problem uh, might not be dealt with in a world where everyone is, is uh, putting his nation first and is merely thinking about national interest. Um, so once we realize that climate change is an issue, uh, there will have to be a decision that uh, we will need to collaborate and put our national interest in some decision-making, uh, not in the first place. And finally, uh, this will be the goal of interest. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Anton. I think that was a really helpful look at how a country uh, like Germany is is really developing its policies over the last couple decades with regard to climate, economic development, resilience, what this means, and how to go about it in this very comprehensive, uh, thorough way that we can all learn from. So we're, we'll turn to our third panelist now before we open it up for uh, discussion with all of you. And our uh, last speaker will be Brad Johnson, who's the president of Resource Mobilization Advisors which is an international consulting firm that designs, facilitates, and implements private sector financing of environmental infrastructure projects in emerging markets. And he also is a member of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, uh, 
which is an organization with which EPSR works very closely. He is on a board of uh, a corporation focused on commercialization of innovative technologies. And uh, he also uh, very recently won the 2015 Bloomberg New Energy Finance Award for his work on solar finance, uh, for solar based financing in the Caribbean. Thank you, Carol. Um, I don't have a presentation. I think that Anton and James have given you a very good, comprehensive overview of climate finance and where it's coming from and where it's going. I'll focus more on basically the Green Climate Fund, mobilizing private sector investments, and why it's important to U.S. industry. Um, I think that the first point that's important to realize is U.S. technology in the renewable energy space is the best in the world, but also more expensive than technology from China, for example. So you could have, you could be a company or a government or a family looking to install solar panels, and if you're paying cash, that five or 10% differential in cost between US solar panels and Chinese panels is substantial. And you're likely to go to the Chinese panel because you want to save money. Um, once you introduce financing, long-term financing, that price differential disappears. So if you can provide 10 or 15 year financing for a US panel versus a Chinese panel, that cost differential is no longer 10%. It's pretty much neutralized by the long-term financing. So it's very important to look at these financial instruments in terms of their impact on the market and their benefits for US technology. I'll give you an example. Um, when SolarCity many years ago first introduced the solar lease concept in California, there were five major solar installing companies in California. They all had basically the same market share coming across the page. Uh, but they were all basically knocking on your door saying, do you want to buy a solar panel? We'll sell it to you for cash. Or you can go to your bank and get a loan and buy the, buy the technology. Um, a lot of people thought, well, that's great. But I'd rather, rather keep my money for a new car or send my kid to school or, or so on and so forth. And once I buy it, I own it. And the panels break. It's my problem. It's a great New Yorker cartoon. A woman stand, standing above the stove and husband's on a ladder. You can only see the lower part of his body. And she says, can Hiram call you back? He's fixing the solar panel right now. So that is one of the impediments to the sale of, of solar panels. Solar City came forward and said, we'll lease finance the panels to you. No upfront cost. We'll own the panels. If they don't work, we're out the money. You're not out the money. The introduction of that financial mechanism increased Solar City's market share by 30% in two months. So financial intervention can have a real positive, real impact on the market. Um, and also, I think the Green Climate Fund's role in this process is to help mobilize local financing 
the extent it can because currency risk is becoming a bigger issue for investments and currency risk as you get into longer term financing becomes more of an impediment to, to finance. Um, most local banks in developing countries only lend seven to 10 years. The shorter the loan period, the higher the, re the, higher the annual payments, the more expensive it looks to you as a client or customer over 10 or 15 years. If you can get local banks to lend for 10 or 15 years, it becomes a much more attractive, again, local financing mechanism. We think the Green Climate Fund can play a major role in beginning to introduce more long-term local financing for renewable energy. James talked about the many financial instruments and modalities that Green Climate Fund works with. We think that's one place where they can really have uh, an impact. Another thing I'll say on behalf of U.S. industries is, at least from our experience, uh, uh, when it comes to, you know, I'm not focusing on U.S.-China, I don't know, maybe it's because of the recent visit of the, of the president, but um, in the Caribbean, in Central America, and Latin America, if they're given a choice and the price differential is not great, most, virtually every customer wants U.S. technology. It is because of after-sale service. They're afraid if they buy Chinese technology and it doesn't work, they're going to have a hard time finding the company again to come in and fix it. Whereas a U.S. company is closer, more reliable, more inclined to have representatives, uh, representatives in countries, and that's helpful. So you know, there's a lot of things the Green Climate Fund can do to help U.S. industries uh, expand their market share globally. Um, and there's a huge market out there. If you look at, um, if, if, as a comparison, New Jersey, which is the same size and population uh, as the Dominican Republic, has installed 1,500 megawatts of solar. The DR has installed 60 megawatts. So there's a huge potential in all these developing countries to for U.S. industries to go in and expand their market share and, and expand their, their business. Um, with regard to the, the Green Climate Fund, I have a couple of recommendations. I think they uh, should get rid of any kind of technical assistance that they're working on. They have a readiness program which helps countries prepare for the Green Climate Fund, but there's been so much technical assistance provided to countries through bilateral aid, the Germans, USAID, the World Bank, that I don't think it's needed, and I, I think the money would be better spent for the GCF to focus on projects, financing projects exclusively. It's not that the technical assistance is so much more expensive, it just takes a lot of staff time to design it, to work it out, to for the consultants, all that sort of thing. The staff at the GCF should be focused exclusively on developing projects. The second thing I think is very important is that GCF should really focus on governments as a client of renewable energy. In the U.S., we have mobilized more than $4 billion in private sector financing for government renewable energy and energy efficiency projects over the last 10 years. Uh, mostly military bases, but 
In every country you're in, the single largest consumer of energy is that country. In every city you're in, the single largest consumer of energy is probably that city. To give you an example, we're currently working in uh, Jamaica with the National Water Commission, which is a commission that provides water for all the cities in Jamaica, Madrid, Puerto Rico, Bay, Kingston. They are the single largest consumer of energy in Jamaica. Uh, we're looking at doing about 15, 20 million dollars of investments in energy efficiency upgrades and solar technology for for Jamaica. And I'll end on a, a request from all of you. And, and that is this, that um, the National Water Commission is eager to do it. We have investors, I have investment funds that are eager to invest in, in this project. But we have a problem with the IMF. Uh, the IMF for countries that have certain levels of debt or reach agreements, these standby financing agreements, and they typically limit the amount of debt a country can take on. In this work that we're doing with the National Water Commission, the National Water Commission is considered a government entity for government debt purposes for the IMF. So the matter if we do it as a lease financing, off balance sheet, public-private partnership, if there's any kind of contingent liability in the financing structure, IMF will step in to stop the transaction, even though it will reduce the government's annual budget by reducing their energy consumption. So there needs to be a little more coordination among international organizations on these kinds of issues. But I think the Green Climate Fund is a great, great concept, deserves a lot of support can be improved, everything can be improved. Um, and I think U.S. business is a great opportunity to take advantage of it uh, once the fund is fully operational and going to give it full speed. So thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. So if you all would come up to the okay. table and we will open it up for discussion for your questions. And I would just ask you if you could go to the microphone here that the people who are listening to the live stream can hear your questions. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Tim Johnson, the computer information and resource service agent in Washington. Um, just curious if you guys can kind of give an overview of kind of what are the critical decisions that need to be made at COP23 this year and ties related to the GCF and um, what should we pay attention to? Um, should I get, no, I answer from here, right? Um, we actually had a discussion on, on the COP that's, that's coming up right now. Um, I think at the, uh, at the COP in, in Paris in 2015, there was an enormous amount of, of media attention. All the heads of state arrived. Um, and that was good because we, we, we came to a result. Um, the cops that have followed, uh, or that are going to follow uh, the cop in Paris, uh, Marrakesh, uh, Bonn in, in, in 2017, in 2018 will be Warsaw, I believe, uh, in Poland, um, have, a, have a different objective. Um, and the objective is implementation, um, and the objective is to um, 
basically follow up on the, the technical gaps that were left open by the Paris Agreement. Uh, one of the major gaps, and these are important decisions that need to be made, it's just somewhat more difficult to, to portray them in a, in a very media-savvy way. Um, so one of the gaps that will be filled, or that we hope to fill at the COP in, in Bonn this year, uh, will be the, the discussion at MRV, Monitoring, Reporting, Verification of Emissions. So all these countries, I think we have 195 NDCs that have been submitted. Um, they have defined their goals. Um, now it's a matter of um, are they following up on these goals and how can we verify that they are hitting their emission targets. Um, and that takes international coordination and takes, uh, it takes definition of what is an emission, how do we monitor it, how is the reporting being done, and is there some, kind, some way of, of verifying the statistical information that's being given by the country. Um, these are very tough negotiations because it means uh, for countries that, for example, have not defined their goal as emissions per se, but as, um, as carbon intensity of their economy, for example, um, that you will need to provide transparency not only on your emissions, but on your entire economy. What is your, your GDP, right? And there's, there's statistics on that, but how can we verify these statistics? Um, and I think a lot of the focus in Bonn will be on the, the MRV discussion and how do we actually now follow up on the NDCs um, and verify that, that countries are on track of, of reaching them. No, I, I think, you know, it, because it's Bonn, and um, I'm no longer associated with the GCF, so I may be in Bonn or I may not, but uh, um, if I'm not, I'm sure, you know, things will go fine without me. So. to have the United States leadership, 
um, but it's, it's not going to change anything for our national policies um, if the United States decides to, to take a different course. Um, so I think that, that will be a message that you will hear in, in Bonn as well. Um, second part of the question uh, was on reclassification. Reclassification, sure. I mean, there's. And this is this is something. There's a there's probably a dozen of very um, very highly trained people at the OECD that are in charge of classifying climate aid as climate aid, and who are in charge of making making these these very strict definitions that then classify something. But it's 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 not a very strict definition. So when I'm involved in a reforestation effort, for example, in in a developing country. Um, certainly, part of that is, is mitigation. Um, certainly, part of that is even adaptation, because I'm maybe fighting erosion. Uh, but that's also creating livelihoods, livelihoods for, for the local population. Um, so that's traditional development that, that's been going on for, for decades before we ever heard of climate change. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of the work will go forward, and, and maybe uh, under under a different under a different brand. Sure. Brad, I just wanted to ask you: Did you have any thought in terms of in, in terms of the situation that the U.S. now is in? Um, in terms of some of these international discussions and kind of the message coming from from folks like you in terms of the U.S. business community and and what is what those messages are to the administration with regard to the international situation. Uh, well, I'm I'm working with the Business Council for Sustainable Energy and helping to develop that message and get it getting it to the administration and others. I, I don't think it's a good idea to try and redefine what we're doing. Uh, as something that's not what it is. Uh, I think this should be a straight-on battle on the merits. Um, I think that uh, the, the funding questions can languish for a while. The Green Climate Fund is not going to spend all this money in the next year or so. Uh, it's more. I think it's more important to prepare a long-term strategy than to do quick fixes in the short term. And, and uh, try and prevail on those points of view. I think the, the private sector, the U.S., the, the private sector has two groups, basically. There's the private sector investors, the banks, the pension fund, well, pension fund, the banks, investment funds. And then there's the private sector's uh, technology providers. And the technology providers are kind of an afterthought often when these organizations begin to think about what they can do to help. Uh, there could be more of a focus on on that message about it's not just financing that's going to solve climate change, it's technology, and it's the deployment of technology. And as you saw in the example of the Dominican Republic, we're not asking for state-of-the-art nuclear power plants. We just want to install solar panels like we are in New Jersey, but they're not being installed. So. I think the, the, there's tremendous potential for the U.S. industries to expand their markets in these countries, but they need creative financial solutions to do that. Great. Thanks, Brad. And I just want to say, with regard to the Dominican Republic, <laughs> surely, surely, there's got to be a way to work the whole baseball situation in terms of their exports to the U.S. in with PBs, right? Okay, Jerry? 
Thank you, Jerry Long, uh, ESI Chair. Uh, great presentation. Um, the question I have is, given the dramatic reduction in the cost of various types of renewable energy, uh, solar and wind at 78 percent shouldn't that change in some respects focus. I know it's 50-50 adaptation and communication. Should we really be doing more on the adaptation side? And if so, wouldn't that be an easier sell for a variety of governments to say that this is part of the public health and safety issue? This is this is this is actually more something they can grab and see more and more easily, adaptation issues. So uh, would you not think that there's a move to move money to that area? It's a very good question, and you're absolutely right. You know, you saw that that curve that that curve that I projected, where on the left-hand side we had stuff that makes sense of its own. You don't actually need incremental money, but it's not happening. And on the right hand, it takes an incremental cost to do the right thing. And in fact, what you're saying is that more and more of these activities are actually moving left into the area that almost that makes sense. Um, on their own, but they're not being done, and they're, they're not being done in emerging economies for a number of reasons. Probably the most important is that they're not the right kinds of financial instruments. They're not the risk-bearing instruments, not the kind of thing that Brad said about the need uh, to um, essentially come in, say, with a leasing solution, which lowers the upfront costs and spreads it out over the life of the, the investment. So this is something the fund can do, uh, although the, the, to ensure that there is the diffusion of these technologies that make sense, uh, sort of to overcome the market uh, failure that's occurring that's preventing them from getting deployed. On adaptation, you know, you're right, this is what needs to be done. The thing about adaptation for the Green Climate Fund is that adaptation essentially generally involves activities that don't generate underlying revenues. They make a lot of sense economically, you know, putting up a seawall in Cotonou or in Lomé, but essentially you can't charge somebody for the seawall. So the question then is if the fund is very much trying to mobilize private financing, adaptation is actually very difficult for the Green Climate Fund to do like others. So the Green Climate Fund in some way should also see on adaptation the same kind of a role, that they should be mobilizing others, but not necessarily private sector, because you can't, but perhaps mobilizing other public sources. So and somehow this is the logic behind it. You may be right in the long term, but this is the thinking at the board level of how to balance these two uh, activities of mitigation and adaptation. Yeah, I just want to, to, to follow on. It's a great question. I, I think if you look at these NDCs that each country has put forward as their plan to meet their promised uh, reductions in carbon emissions, you will see there's no, I don't think there's a single country that says we want to install solar panels and even with GCF support, we're going to raise rates on our customers to, to pay for that. Invariably, every uh, plan and almost every proposal that's gone to the Green Climate Fund yeah. has mixed Close. the two. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 the cell mitigation is also a part of adaptation. Yeah. And, it's, and as James said, I mean, it's, it, it's very hard to monetize adaptation. It's, uh, it's, it's a good question. It's, a, it's a, an issue whose answer goes beyond my pay scale. But um, I, I do think if Climate change is the challenge it is. We need to go full, you know, full force on reducing carbon emissions as much as we can. And if there are adaptation aspects to it, that's great. Uh, but I, I, I think uh, to focus on adaptation is 
is at the expense of mitigation would be a mistake. Um, thanks, Brett. It, at the same time, I think you're also both saying that in terms of mitigation investments, we need to make sure that they are done in a way that they enhance the resilience yeah, of that absolutely. infrastructure or those local communities. Because absolutely. otherwise, that would be Embedded adaptation exactly. in mitigation. Exactly. Exactly. Can I just um, add one more point? I mean, th sure. there's there's a, a lot of proposals to increase production of food on existing farmlands as a way of uh, creating a disincentive for deforestation, um, which is great. But you also have to understand that there's a great amount of carbon emitted through food waste in the world, and if you're going to expand food production as an incentive not to deforest, you're going to have to have something to deal with the increased food in the food chain uh, to eliminate the carbon emissions. They, they say that food waste, if it were a country, would be the second largest emitter of carbon. And uh, so there, there needs to be, I think, understanding the, the interplay between the two is very important. Um, I think that's a really, really important point that all of this always needs to be looked at very holistically, and too often we forget to do that. Uh, we'll take these last two questions, okay? So, I just want to ask you about the private sector. Um, there's a lot of uh, black money out there, especially in the world, like the uh, like, uh, $2.5 trillion US has in black money right now. Um, is there any uh, talk on like, trying to get that money implemented to raise this project on the bank? Dealing with black money sounds intriguing to me, but um, so, like, a lot of corporate like, you know, how much Google, Microsoft, Apple is holding the national right. like, corporate on money they'll bring back is they want to. I mean, I think, I think the key thing about climate finance in emerging economies is there's not a lack of money. There's a lot of money out there. If we take a look at institutional investors, so forget Google and Apple and Netflix and those guys, institutional investors, essentially people managing uh, pension funds and people managing insurance assets, I think they, they basically control something like, it's a stunning amount, $120 trillion worth of assets. The world GDP is about $75 trillion. There's a huge amount of money out there, but it's not going into climate finance, a climate... Uh, friendly projects in emerging economies. And the reason it's not going is not because there's absence of money, but because the risk profile is preventing investors from going in and feeling sufficiently comfortable that they'll get their money back with the kinds of returns they need. So this is the issue. The issue is not one of lack of money, it's of excess of risk. And we have to change the risk profile for these kinds of projects in emerging economies. And I think that that's the, the realization that's come to pass with people like WRI and the World Bank and you know, people like Brad and so on, that they've basically understood the obstacle. And the obstacle is this one of risk, which is sometimes political risk, 
countries have unfriendly environments for investors, uh, they may be unstable, uh, the Dominican Republic may, I don't know, Brad knows it. So each country has its issue, but also in climate, there's a technolo potential technology risk, which is declining all the time, but still exists. And then there's one about, uh, will you know, a government come in and say, change the environment and declare that we don't deal with climate change anymore, and essentially under, sort of um, undermine the entire investment framework in which the investment's being made. Hence, the interest of oil companies to have a carbon price to set some predictability for the long term, even in this country, about their investment programs. So the question then ultimately is managing the risk that is preventing climate-friendly climate projects from being uh, invested, being financed in emerging economies. <coughs> If I could just add one comment to James. I mean, every country we work, the local banks are flush with cash, both local currency and foreign currency. And they're not investing, as, as James mentioned, because of risk. And a lot of times, it's simply perceived risk. Yeah. It's not real risk. They just don't have the training to understand the risk to be able to evaluate it. So the, the dark money, the corporate funds that are out there is a possible way of doing it, but, but there is a rich resource of local bank financing in every country we've been in that um, needs to be focused on and mobilized to address this issue. Thank you. Thank you for being patient. Go ahead. Um, as a free market guy, uh, I heard especially uh, Dr. Vaughn mentioned a couple of times that I think read like implication of market failure, and yet most of what we've been talking about especially the question and answer, has been institutional government failure. And I'm not convinced that going down this road uh, balances out where the failure is, where the opportunity is, and having less faith in uh, international institutions to not get captured. Uh, and you pointed out uh, mass levels of corruption and also there's a, a level of mistaking uh, local incentives for like, for example, the charcoal trade as a deforestation issue. It's not farming, it's making charcoal. That's mass. You have this thing called fossil fuels. And it's much more dense than charcoal and on and on and on. But uh, going back to the market failure versus the government institutional failure, um, I, I think that that's fundamental. I guess I have a greater trust in the market to sort it out than I do in the institutions. I think you all should take the time. It's a great, great closing kind of This is a great closing comment. Thank you very much. And actually, I'm going to, we're each going to take, I think, take a crack at it. What I've done since I've left the world, uh, the, 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 the Green Climate Fund, is essentially infrastructure in low-income countries, finding ways to finance it. And if you take a look at things like a port, or an airport, and specific ports. Let's talk about the, the port of Tema in Ghana. You take a look at uh, financing uh, electricity infrastructure in Kenya. I did the wind farm here. What is it that I do? These projects have great returns. I go in, they have much better returns than anything in this country or in Europe. Great return, or Dominican Republic, by the way, Brad. The great returns, they're not getting done, and they're not getting done for a number of reasons. Sometimes, because if it's a power plant, the off-taker, KEPCO, say, Kenyan power company, is not solvent, and you're not sure they get paid back. 
but oftentimes it's simply that there isn't the financial instrument able to basically extend long-term debt financing for as long as the life of the asset. These banks are lending the, 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 the securities market in Abidjan, which covers eight countries of West Africa, I think typically it's only done one bond of eight years. That's the only one. It almost always issues paper at 24 months. And there's absolutely no way you can take the best combined cycle gas-fired power plant in the world and do it in eight years. You can't do it. It can't be done. It's never been done. So you need minimum 12, maybe 15 years extension. So if somebody comes in and fixes that market failure, and it doesn't require a lot of money, in other words, for example, gives what's called a partial credit guarantee to extend the financing from eight years to 12, the project is financed like that. And that is what the Green Climate Fund has the capacity to do if it's allowed to do its work by its board, by the global community, and all that kind of thing. It is, It can be done. And by the way, the kinds of things I'm talking about have been done. There is a gas, combined cycle gas-fired power plant called Vridi that was done by fixing the market failure, and the project was done and has been producing electric power from an offshore gas field now for about 12 years. So this can be done. Market failures can be fixed. There is a role for the Green Climate Fund to do it. But, um, and I believe that this is the way to get the private sector, the, the, the market, if you like, to function more effectively than it is doing in, in emerging economies. So that's my take on the, the response. As, as an economist myself, uh, in an earlier part of my life, I want to go back to the, the market failure, maybe, because the original market failure uh, that, that keeps us from solving this problem on the market is the lack of a carbon price, mentioned by James in the beginning. Right? So if um, we, we are dealing with, and there's, there's efforts in, in a number of developed countries to either um, have emission trading systems such as in the, in the European Union or as Canada is, is implementing one now. There's talk in the US about a, a carbon tax that would put a price on carbon. When you have a system like that, the market is allowed to work and the market is then able to differentiate between different sources of energy uh, depending on their, on their real cost. Because the issue at the moment is um, if I'm building a coal-fired power plant at the moment, I'm not paying the cost of coal. I'm paying a fraction of the cost of coal because most of the cost is external and is borne by other people. It's borne by people suffering from climate change, it's borne by people suffering from asthma attacks, etc. It's not being borne by the person that builds the coal plant. In the, in the beginning. So that's the, the, the market fail that we're dealing with in the beginning. And then this international climate aid is one of the instances um, where we're able to, or trying at least, uh, to uh, compensate that market failure by, by an institutional arrangement. And the institutional arrangement is that, especially in countries that wouldn't be able to deal with the global price for carbon, um, um, Developing countries are not going to um, work with the same carbon price that we're working with in the, in the developed world. And this is a way to influence their decision making in a way that's beneficial for, uh, for the global community. Uh, because if their decision is I can build a coal-fired power plant uh, with no assistance or I can spend the money on solar panels that might be significantly more expensive, but I get aid for that then that's the decision-making we're able to influence and we're able to alleviate that, that market failure that was there in the beginning. Um, I think you raised a very, very important 
point about the market's role in all of this and the importance of the Green Climate Fund and other international institutions to let the markets fully oper operate in the most efficient way. But I will point out that it's uh, markets all have, always have some kind of governmental influence. And the reason we have so much solar installed in the U.S. is because of Solar City and a lot of other uh, solar installers, but it's because of the investment tax credit. And so much solar has been installed in Germany and Europe because of the, the feed-in tariff. Those expenditures of taxpayer dollars in, in the and they call tax expenditures, the tax credits, or the, the, the feed-in tariffs created the market for solar and drove down the cost of solar. If, we, if the US and Europe hadn't created the, this incentive in the market to do solar outside of market forces, the price of solar panels would be much more expensive today than they are. So there's, there's a, I, I respect the importance of letting markets play out in these circumstances, but it's also important to understand that governments can have an important role in, in shaping markets to achieve uh, national objectives. Okay, and that is the last word. And I want to say thank you very, very much for the panel. Thank you for having us.